everyone, Lexa here with a quick programming note. Uh, just wanted to give a little heads up to provide you with some context. Hector and I recorded this episode last month, about halfway through May of 2020. The tone and the stuff that we talk about is going to reflect that fact. Uh, but we hope that you enjoy this episode of Fool's Guide to the Occult. As always, thank you so much for listening. I am many. I am one. I accept this sacred work to be given into my hands, to attend the temple of the first flame and carry it within me. I will not be blinded by the light, for I am its bearer. I will not flee from darkness, for it is within me. And I will endure what I must, to know, to dare, to will, to remain silent for myself, for my species, for my planet, and for the great work of magic. Welcome to Fool's Guide to the Occult. I'm the Summer Breeze. And I'm Luxa. And today we are talking about initiation. Yeah, I'm really stoked about this episode right now as we're writing this. Um, I'm also sort of going through the process of designing this for myself. Um, I'm working on, uh, you know, sort of a, going through a transitional period, as I think many of us probably are, um, taking a hard look at just like a lot of things, aspects of my life, stuff like that, where I want to be, how to make it happen, and how to move forward. A lot of that is about like my mundane life, I guess, if you want to use SCA terms, but um it's very informed by like my personal code of honor and duality, I guess. Um, so I think uh, I'll have some interesting stuff to share in our journaling section, probably our next episode. But speaking of journaling, before we get started with this episode, we should probably do a bit of journaling now, shouldn't we? Yeah, definitely. Let's do that. All right. So our last episode, we talked about ego magic. So let's see what we have in that vein of things. All right. Sounds good. All right. So I loved what you said earlier about defining a path for yourself. And there's a lot of room for flexibility in many other like traditions too. So if that's your thing and that works for you, that's super cool too. Um, I, like you said, I think a lot of us are at a place right now where we're kind of taking a hard look at things. There's <laughs> so much opportunity for introspection lately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, personally, uh, in addition to integrating my practice into more areas of my life, uh, one of my goals for this year has been to sort of enhance the practice too. And these things are actually two sides of the same coin. Uh, it's like more bandwidth, maybe. Uh, anyway, I've been able to progress and sort of get rid of some blocks and stuff. Uh, it's been cool, but challenging in some unforeseen ways, but I guess that most things worth doing are challenging. But there's also been some really fun stuff, like my experiment with group ego magic. I've been doing a lot with energy stuff. Uh, I had made the observation that the throat chakra, if you want to use that terminology, never seemed to like be as good as some of the other ones. Uh, but addressing my issues with shyness a little bit has already helped to improve this. And also, while we're on the topic, I'd like to make a short point about ego magic that I don't think I mentioned in our last episode. So here goes. The systems in place that exist to keep us in our places must first be overcome in one's own mind before they can be addressed or even sometimes observed in the outside world. Okay, now I'm just saying. 
we might do well to work in whatever quiet way we can to subvert and undermine these systems, especially insofar as to reduce their control on us by means of our own conditioning. Uh, anyway, what have you been up to? <laughs> um, well, this is probably a better journal entry for your side project than for this show, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Yay. Um, so, I, I mean, being pent up in the house for a very long time now, I'm not mm-hmm. honestly sure how long it's been anymore. Yeah. Um, I've gotten a little... <laughs> <laughs> um, like, like, I don't know, like, I have Tinder on my phone. I'm, I'm looking at it every once in a while, and it's like, hey, you haven't been on in a while. It gives you those, like, little push notifications, right? And I'm like, what's even the point of having this on my phone? I can't or shouldn't meet people. Um, you know, we're probably stuck in this situation for several more months. Um, it's, like, a bigger joke than it ever was. I don't know. Um, you know, I... I can see how some people might think this journal entry is going to go downhill quick. And I guess depending on your perspective and degree of domestication slash colonization or repression, you might not be wrong. <laughs> but uh, in, in instead of overindulging in the typical, often tasteless and sometimes, frankly, disturbing nature of the, most of the modern erotica industry, uh, I've been doing two things. One is exploring uh, the history of that, which includes reading actual books on the topic, which there are surprisingly several, as well as, you know, looking at the, uh, shall we say, primary sources. Through, like, this reading and looking at stuff, I'm finding, like, erotica seemed to have, like, a bit more class, shall we say, 50, 100 years ago. I've been reading probably, well, several contemporary articles about people's reactions to, like, you know, the human form, nudity in art, public nudity, primarily focusing on the United States since I live there. I know this stuff is kind of different. Like if you're tuning in from Europe or some other parts of the world, like um, people tend to be a little less shamed about their body, maybe. I don't know. There's like definitely from what I understand, there's more like nudity is like not as big of a deal as it is here. So I'm starting to think like the, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s probably died in like the 80s and 90s i'm not sure people these days are really as liberated as they think they are um which has caused me to to think a lot about like my own thoughts like metacognition haha thinking about my thoughts (laughs) (laughs) and feelings and assumptions and standards of beauty and so forth and really trying to break down like what those conditionings are thing those conditioned things are like you were talking about earlier versus you know what is who i am as a person so there's not a a lot of specific ego magic per se in there, but definitely ego work, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important work. I mean, whatever you want to call it, right? And side note, <laughs> bragging about how classy your taste is is a fun flex. So <laughs> that's cool. I'm looking forward to hearing about what you discover in your research. I actually have a ton to say about this topic. Uh, so a lot we could go into in terms of like the psychology and all kinds of other things, but I think I will save most of it for when we talk about sex magic but i will say this um i definitely agree with you about people not being as liberated as they think they are these days but i think we're working on it maybe i don't know i actually did something kind of similar to what you're talking about in terms of like deconditioning a while back so one super simple technique i found especially effective was to go and sit at the beach 
and watched all the people walk by while accessing what Carol might call the green gnosis. I think we touched on this in our last episode. Uh, Anyway, in this case, I might be able to sum it up even more simply by saying, sit on the beach and look at the people as you meditate on the unique beauty of each individual uh, you see until you like kind of go into gnosis or even more simply like open your heart and your eyes at once and just really, really look, (laughs) just look (laughs) and interrogate your reactions, you know, like do a little bit of like insight there, Uh, repeat. Uh, and then imagine yourself that you're that person. Uh, what is it like to be them? Maybe you already are them. Uh, wear sunglasses when you do this, guys. Oh my God, really? <laughs> Depending on the situation, people might get freaked out because they think that you're staring at them, which I guess you sort of are. It's not as creepy as it sounds, I promise. <laughs> I did this several times over the course of a few months before I really started to like notice results in the way I was thinking. But yeah, I do. I actually still do it sometimes. Uh, you could obviously do this anywhere, right? I like the beach because of the association with Venus. But you know, you typically you typically also get to see more of people there, so it could be more effective. There are a lot of ends that this type of reprogramming can serve beyond expanding one's like own taste past the like mundane or mainstream notions of attractiveness. And side note, many of which are riddled with problematic issues too numerous to address here. (laughs) So (laughs) further, so many of our beauty standards are like the result of marketing, whether it's direct, like in the form of advertising or through like less direct ways, like movies and things. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be like this constant low level of like emotional abuse towards the individual, especially in creating like notions of inadequacy where buying a product or service can alleviate these uh, inadequacies. So yeah, they create the problem and then they can sell you the solution for it. But I will read you more of my manifesto later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and remind me that uh, we have to talk about Venus at some point. But um, yeah, Uh, I'm right there with you. I I took a class my junior year in college called Art in the Human Body, which was um, all about like beauty standards in different cultures over or you know around the world across time, um, from like some of the earliest uh, depictions of the human form, like Venus of Willendorf, to like the modern day. It was super fascinating. But there is a second thing I've been working on um, that I think is at least somewhat worth noting here. I've been doing well, thinking about and doing a little bit of like redesigning of self-presentation for like when this whole mess is over and I can go out and see people again maybe like self-style is part of it I don't know anyway you know magic is all about will and intention and energy and um as such I think there's like a lot of magic in like carefully and intentionally selected wardrobe including like style color um as well as rethinking like mannerisms ways of speaking like just like generally how you move and act and interact with the world all this leads to the energy you know you give off or draw in or just like how i don't know how you're able to interact with the social sphere i guess Mm -hmm. um so as an artist thinking about this um it's really great and fun because i actually get to sort of design some of my own stuff that i'm gonna wear and things like that and i have the time to actually work on those projects which is kind of cool but uh, to really get a sense of where to go, I guess I've not only been looking at uh, contemporary fashion trends, but also like lists of basically sex symbols for the past 
several decades going back to the 20s and uh you know the roaring 20s seems to be uh in vogue right now despite uh the history not really being exactly what most i've been using um all that to sort of redesign myself in some ways obviously there will be some more direct ego magic going into all of that later on but i probably won't have time until like june or so um you know when i'm done teaching chillins <laughs> yeah dude i mean it's definitely i think a lot of people are up to this right now a little glamour magic i would say so that's cool so okay should we talk about initiation i feel like we've been talking about a lot of other stuff <laughs> is that what this episode's about i thought, I we thought... Were, are we recording an episode right now i thought oh, we should are we recording <laughs> get on we're definitely recording uh, i don't know i thought what? we were just gonna shoot the shit for an hour <laughs> all right is that what so, this giant pile of notes is for? <laughs> All right. What is initiation in a broad sense? All right. There's there's a lot of similarity between the idea of initiation and uh, rites of passage. So in a sense, initiation is a rite of passage. It's just a spiritual one. Um, as many rites of passage are about rebirth or birth in general or you know adulthood becoming a citizen a full member of a tribe or a clan initiation is about rebirth but like into spiritual life um, like entry into a coven or a group of practitioners or like a church you know there's even initiation ceremonies in christianity and all kinds of other religions so you know often initiation will involve like many other rituals the reenactment of some kind of myth um, for example, initiation into Freemasonry involves the reenactment of the death of uh, Hiram Abiff, the supposed master mason responsible for overseeing the construction of King Solomon's temple, the first temple of Jerusalem. The initiate symbolically dies and is reborn. In fact, these death and rebirth initiation rituals uh, mirror the myth of the dying god, which I know we've gone over uh, to varying degrees in earlier episodes. Uh, this is a a very common theme in religion among both i guess deities as well as people initiated in their tradition yeah it is a classic yeah but before we get into the spiritual side of things uh though i will endlessly argue that all aspects of our experience are entwined and thus spiritual uh, let's discuss some historical and anthropologic examples, anthropological, anthropological examples of rites of passage. All right, yeah, that sounds good. And in regards to all things being intertwined, you will get no argument from me. All right, we're going to start out our episode today uh, taking a look at, so as Rebecca and Philip Stein pointed out in the Anthropology of Religion, Magic, and Witchcraft, rites of passage are the rituals that of any and every culture have been of the most interest and uh, subjected to the greatest degree of study, I guess, by anthropologists. Uh, when I was doing my coursework uh, almost a decade ago now, um, my undergrad coursework in anthro, we discussed these rituals pretty extensively in my cultural anthropology courses, rites of passage, uh, market change and status of an individual within the context of that given society or cultural operating system. And with that change, there are new expectations and behavior, style of dress, mannerisms, ways of speaking, just in general, how you interact with the community. So, yeah, I mean, in this case, the initiation 
is just as much for the benefit of like the surrounding society as it is for the initiate or the person going through the rite of passage. It's about like knowing that someone is going to have like a new role to play in their culture, right? Yeah, exactly. The rite of passage is just like a spiritual initiation imprints a social change in the psyche of the the people participating in the ritual. As the Steins point out in their book, it also grants community approval. Uh, modern examples of this include like graduation or wedding ceremonies. Um, in Judaism, there's the, the coming-of-age ceremonies, the bar and bat mitzvahs for boys and girls, um, at which time they're considered like responsible for their own actions. In the Anthropology of Magic and Witchcraft, the authors point out that the life cycle rites of passage are very common. Like such ceremonies that, that honor birth and change in status from childhood to adulthood, um, like the previous example, marriage, death, and so forth. There are also political rites of passage and ceremonies, like, I don't know, when someone gets elected to office or ascends the throne or something like that, um, as well as religious ceremonies, which we will primarily be discussing today. But before we dig into all the general structure of these ceremonies i'd like to to give a couple more specific examples of rites and pass rites of passage um some of which are more or less ceremonial than others but here we go first day of school turning 16 or you know however you need however old you need to be to, to get your driver's permit wherever you live respectively puberty Signing up for the votes or signing up for the draft, like losing your virginity can be a rite of passage for people. Uh, the first time you ever smoked or drank alcohol or the first time you ever did those things legally. Um, <laughs> the first time you ever did a drug. Marriage, again, is an example. I guess divorce, in a way, could be considered one of these as well. Uh, job promotion. Those are just a few that come to mind. Yeah, one example that somebody pointed out to me was boot camp in the military. It's this process of like conducting these repeated actions in this kind of ritual way for an extended period of time. At least that's how it was explained to me. I've never been. No, either have I. Um, I've had family and friends who served and such. I read this document um, written by a ex-boot camp drill instructor who explained a variety of things that they, they do in boot camp um, in basic training are the, are the same things or a lot of the same things that uh, cult leaders will do to like break down new members of their cults to make them compliant, like keeping people up for extremely long hours, like sleep deprivation, working people beyond the state of exhaustion. Um, these things are like really effective in uh, breaking someone down and opening them up to like re-imprinting or rewriting their, their programming. Don't get me wrong. I fully support having a standing military. I just, uh, I don't think brainwashing people is morally acceptable even in the time of war, but moving on. <laughs> I'd like to hear what people who have been through it think too. Like, so let us know. I mean, if this is a super interesting topic, obviously sticky. Um, I feel like I don't really know enough to have like a strong opinion, but I wouldn't super be surprised. Um, I mean, even considering like a lot of companies use like management techniques that could be called cult-like in order to like make employees feel like they have or that they're a part of an organic community instead of a transactional relationship, right? I'm just saying. Uh, anyway. No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I know some of the companies you're talking about and it's very culty. Um, but hey, um, so the Steins point out three phases of rites of passage. 
the first being the separation of the individual from their previous status which they point out can happen instantly with like some kind of ceremony by symbolic means or it can take place over um, an extended period of time such as during um, a trial of some kind the second part is the transitional phase which brings about a change in status similarly this can take place like quickly and symbolically or again over a period of several years such as like a apprenticeship or something like that uh finally there must be like an incorporation uh or an end to the transitional phase leading to the recognition of their new status the transitional phase in some i don't really like using the word tribal but first nations people or i don't know in some other societies are are marked by like seclusion um, or some kind of separation from the core group, like maybe a small group of people will be taken off, like maybe a bunch of kids that are about to be like initiated into adulthood or something like that. And they'll be like separated from the core group or the their families. And then um, sometimes these changes are also marked by an alteration to the body. Uh, many people, even today, tend to get like tattoos or piercings marking great significant changes in their life. I personally have done this Oh, three times now. Yeah, absolutely. I actually only have one tattoo, and I definitely got it to mark a like a very significant event. Uh, in my case, it was a commitment to a new way of life. Yeah, I have uh, one for um, that, and one for uh, a painful memory, and one for uh, spiritual awakening. Nice. But um, I've also read an article from a guy who is like a follower of Santa Muerte. Uh, who got a tattoo as a sacrifice and show of devotion to her. But, um, you know, other examples of this include uh, just like changing of clothes, uh, hairstyle, body painting, um, more permanent changes like tattooing, scarification, uh, piercing. Tooth filing is one, tooth coloring as well. Uh, branding, head shaping, although that tends to be like something you have to do uh, when the, the person is like a baby. Um, circumcision, pilgrimages sometimes mark ceremonies as well, or like a quest of some kind, like having to go out and, I don't know, seek something. Yeah, definitely. So we can find countless examples of what initiation looks like in our culture and in other societies. But like, what about in more esoteric terms? So to get us started, I'd like to throw out a quick quote from Lon Milo Duquette's Son of Chicken Kabbalah. Uh, where the purpose of these types of rituals is defined as awakening the student to be educated. The idea is to trigger the process by putting the student through a series of artfully designed emotional psychological experiences that essentially mutate the individual on a subconscious level, a process known as initiation. So I'm sort of a fan of Duquette, so I wanted to toss that in here. But what are some other definitions? Um, all right. Well, according to the Watkins Dictionary of Magic, magical initiation is defined as uh, a magic ceremony involving a sense of transition or self-transformation. The subject may be shown new symbolic mysteries, given a secret name or words of power, or granted a higher ceremonial rank in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn system of magic, from which most forms of modern Western occultism have evolved, 
there were different grades of initiation for each level level of the Kabbalistic tree of life leading up to the experience of spiritual rebirth in uh, candidate uh, attaining the grade associated with that would then proceed to the membership of the inner order. In many occult traditions, magicians take a new name or motto to reflect their new statement of attainment, or sorry, new state of attainment. Magical initiation may be formally acknowledged unless the candidate has a particular visionary experience that confirms his or her new uh, magical status. In Wicca, there are uh, three initiations culminating in the great rite that is depending on what tradition you are involved with. And that is all according to the Watkins Dictionary of Magic. No, oh, that's cool. I just, um, real quick, uh, Tiffra, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I've only seen it written, but it's the uh, six Sephiroth of the Tree of Life in the Kabbalistic tradition, and it is beauty. So there you have it. Anyway, oh, nice. You. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, Kabbalah is not something I'm too experienced with at this point, but, Me either. Uh, you know, I'll get there. So much Me story. Too. <laughs> Me too. As Raymond Buckland points out in Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, there's a catharsis, a spiritual cleansing. The person becomes, in effect, another person. Uh, a simple example that covers probably both this spiritual cleansing and transformation is the rite of baptism uh, among Christians. Uh, I really appreciate rereading through Buckland's chapters on rites of passage and initiation, though. And if you have the book kicking around, it's uh, lesson four, pages 41 through 49. Dish on Llewellyn publishing all you want, but uh, one thing I really appreciate about Buckland's book, though there are some issues with it, but he does include like a great deal of historical background as well as uh, anthropological and sociological analysis of the topics he discusses, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. And also hot takes on Llewellyn, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you know, there seems to be a trend right now among at least some circles of operating under the perspective that if it isn't like hardcore, deeply ritualized, scrubbed of any kind of fluffy bunny stuff, it's garbage. And I think this is a little bit of a, a cynical and frankly depressing way to, to, to go. Um, most people seem to dish on Llewellyn primarily because of Silver Ravenwolf. And, you know, we've heard this from one or two people in the past. Basically, the argument I've received a couple times is very, uh, kind of goes like this, like SRW is not an authority on witchcraft. When I think what people mean is she's not an authority on Wicca. So maybe there's some noise there for those of you that are following our Patreon discussion about uh, quantum psychology um, and Robert Anton Wilson. But I suppose this is um, you know a fine time to reiterate something I've, I've tried to point out in the first few episodes of our very first season. Um, but here it goes again. There's a huge difference between Wicca and witchcraft. Witchcraft is the use of magic to achieve specific ends and is employed in many traditions and paths, including Wicca. Wicca itself is a religion that employs the use of witchcraft. Um, witchcraft does not belong to Wicca. It uh, has existed since prehistoric times, longer than we can trace it, at, trace it back, um, and has been employed by people 
all over the world from the American continents to Europe to Africa to Asia and the archaeological and anthropological evidence of which is far-reaching. Yeah, dude, I think those are pretty good distinctions to point out because there does seem to be a lot of confusion surrounding those terms, like uh, Wicca and witchcraft. And this is actually for a pretty good reason. Um, as Neville Droy points out in Stealing Fire from Heaven, the term Wicca is derived from the Old English word for a practitioner of witchcraft. So, all right, maybe we can sum it up like this, though. A little Venn diagram here. All Wiccans are practitioners of witchcraft, but not all practitioners of witchcraft are Wiccan. I like it. All right. So yeah, we're planning to talk more about Wicca in future episodes. So I'm definitely looking forward to learning more about that. As far as Silver Ravenwolf goes, though, I definitely have heard that there's some controversy there. Um. Yeah. All right. This isn't really what this episode is about, but let's just clear the air and, and throw it all out there, or at least do our best, I think. Um, I'll go into a little bit of detail here about uh, about the whole thing. I guess here here's my little opinion piece. Um, you ready? Yeah, I do it. All right. So the issue most people seem to have with SRW, other than her so-called fluffy bunny approach and... Seriously, folks, if you don't have a little silliness in your life, you are headed down Ebenezer Scrooge Lane, all right? Chill out, guys. But, (laughs) yeah, totally. But the other issues that that people seem to have with her are relatively valid, right? And some Mm -hmm. of them are are more valid than others, but um, the, the other arguments are pretty valid. That still doesn't invalidate all of her work. No, I haven't read it all. She's written a lot of crap. Well, a lot of stuff. Um when I first got into all this stuff, when I was like 12, I had the teen witch book. It was given to me. I read it. It's fine for children. Um, and then I got solitary witch a few years later, which I still have kicking around and sometimes use as a reference. But most of my other experience with Wicca and the occult in general is like totally outside of Silver Eagle. She sometimes is a bit anti-Christian, kind of problematic given her like credo and stuff. But like, I, I don't know, that's a whole nother thing. Like there, there's there's stuff there. Some of her views and opinions on Wicca definitely differ from other people's. Again, like it's a really diverse practice at this point with a lot of different sects and traditions and things going on. Yeah, so like her, her practices and ideas are different because every witch is different. Every practitioner is different. Every coven is different. Uh, one of the other arguments is like her name is silly. And like... If that's the reason you're going to hate somebody, <laughs> you're the next witch we should burn. <laughs> um, so some more more valid arguments uh, include that, uh, you know, people have accused her of spreading some misinformation. I, you know, I'm not entirely sure which specific things they're, they're talking about there. Um, again, I haven't read all of her work. You know, again, that could be like a matter of opinion for people and, probably based on a lot of assumptions about what Wicca is and isn't. Um, other criticisms include that um, all of her, her books and research and stuff is just like research-based and not contributing anything new to the body of work. I can see that being kind of a problem, um, but honestly, like I think secondary sources are fine as long as there's something useful in there in some way. The tone of her work sometimes comes off with a little bit of maybe uh, sometimes she might perpetuate some myths and outdated ideas, I guess. I mean, 
that's also the case with a lot of other people. I think a lot of the people um, that I know that have criticized her of this kind of stuff, like perpetuating myths and, and outdated ideas or like being a racist, they're also the same people that have Helena Blavatsky and Manly P. Hall in their libraries who have definitely come up with far more outlandish ideas and blatant racism in their work. Uh, if you can't read around the author's ego and pick out the details that are useful to you and practical to you, then personally, maybe books aren't really the best way for you to learn this stuff. Um, you know, there are other ways. Um, but like, here's kind of like my bottom line. A lot of her work is probably best for young Wiccans, like preteens and teens. And, you know, probably ones that don't have pagan parents who can't already like share this stuff with them and help them like learn like a lot of her work is just written in that way and friends it's fine just it's fine you don't like your stuff don't read it all right um i just want to respond real quick go ahead i i agree with you if you don't like her work don't fucking read it you know what who cares uh you're obviously entitled to your opinions right uh it does seem like some of the criticism is valid though like i'm actually not super familiar with her work I read a copy of a friend's like solitary, which are a long time ago, but I was always drawn to like a little bit of a different aesthetic. But it seems like some people are pissed off at her for telling teens to lie in order to keep their practice secret from their parents. And some people seem mad because, as you said, she has some critical things to say about Christianity and her critics feel that, you know, she shouldn't like have included these like shots at another religion in her book about a separate religion um mm. and yeah i think that's valid too especially if she's like i love everyone but fuck christians <laughs> you know like, if that's what she's saying then yeah that sounds kind of hypocritical yeah you're kind of right so i mean lots of uh things to interrogate there are some people in my life who i'm close to and who i love who are like evangelical Christians, right? They have a lot of books about what Christians should do to fight against witchcraft and occultism and everything. I've seen these books on their bookshelves. Um, it's funny, right? I'm not a particularly evangelical person myself, so I don't say anything. I don't care. <laughs> but I guess I'm still sort of lying like those teen witches from those Christian families. I'm not like saying anything about it. I'm not like, hey, but anyway... I'll say something about it. Kids, if you're listening to this show and the show is rated explicit, but if you are here uh, and you have to lie to your parents, go ahead. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and also it's not like Silver Ravenworth fired the first shot in the debate between, I don't know, paganism and some types of Christianity. Bottom line, think what you want, I guess. I could definitely, like, see it from both sides. Yeah, you know, I'll... I'll take Silver Ravenwolf's side on this one. And I'm going to quote Saul Williams. Um, in many households, wisdom no longer comes with age. You know, I had lied, lied to my parents for like three quarters of my life about who I was, what I believed, both spiritually and politically, and hid like all kinds of aspects of myself. Um, you know, I was taught from a pretty young, young age that their house wasn't a safe space to be an independent thinker and to explore life. So, you know, if you've got to lie to your family about who you are until you're out on your own like fucking do what you gotta do man absolutely do what you gotta do um i feel like unfortunately this is probably a pretty common experience that people have i know we've talked a little bit about the stigma that exists relating to the occult 
Um, even if your family is like super nice and chill, you might still fear like being teased or looked down on or whatever. And we're social animals. Nobody wants to be ostracized. But anyway, it seems like another thing that people are mad at Silver Ravenwolf for is that she has her name on this kind of cheesy um, teen witch kit. So to get some context, I looked it up, and here is a description from the manufacturer. Okay. Here is everything the novice spellcaster needs to practice the craft of the wise and to be a force for good. Step into the sacred space and discover the secrets of one of the world's oldest mysteries, the art and science of white magic, a gentle, loving practice. <laughs> this this kit contains a beautifully illustrated book of instruction plus six magical talismans, including a silver pentacle pendant, salt, and a spell bag. The kit box converts into your own personal altar. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a little cringy, I guess. It's a little funny. But you know what, dude? If somebody sees this shit and they feel like this is a cool, magical thing to them, then that's really the only fucking thing that matters. Like, nobody gets to tell me what my practice should look like. So, you know what? Fuck it. If you're into Fluffy Bunny and all that shit, like, hell yeah, dude. You do you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean, that is, like, super cheesy. But, like, how much of that was her and how much of that was, like, her company and, like, the people that produce her material and the marketing team and that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> let's leave some leave her let's leave silver Just raven. Go on, like a 20 minute rant about silver raven wolf and like llewellyn publishing and we needed to get it out there <laughs> you know what it's out of my system now though so like i won't have to bring it up again and if somebody else like brings it up again let's come on the show and debate that shit yeah okay l l leave silver raven wolf alone for now and we'll see what some other authors have to say about the topic of initiation all right all which right. i swear is what we're here to talk about i'm pretty sure we've talked about everything else already uh <laughs> all right so in in their chapters on initiation uh both raymond buckland and starhawk point out that there's this like symbolic death thing we, we've talked about this a little bit already that the the death of one's old life, such as in the examples given earlier about like initiation into Freemasonry um, before being reborn into like a full life or, or path upon which one is being initiated. There has to be this like death or transition. Starhawk also includes that it is part of one's acceptance into the coven as well as expressing the individual's commitment or dedication to the goddess. Buckland includes several elements of the separation phase of the initiation, including absorption into the study of the craft, meditation on your path to union with the art, ritual cleansing and bathing, fasting, uh, sexual abstinence for at least a day before the ritual. Um, he also describes like ritual binding and blindfolding, as well as uh, renaming, which Starhawk also covers in the Spiral Dance. Now, here's one of the tidbits of this section of Buckland's book, which I think is one of the most important things in this chapter, at least in, in some ways. A lot of this, it's all important for different reasons, but it's something that I think a lot of people um, I've come into contact with, especially on, in online magical communities and forums, kind of really need to hear. So Buckland writes, uh, years ago, the majority of witches, myself included, frowned on the very idea of self-initiation and didn't stop to think of, A, 
what might have been done in old times, those living miles away from a coven, or B, how did the first witch get initiated? He does add a little caveat, though. You can only get initiated, um, or you can only do initiation or self-dedication generally. You cannot, for example, initiate yourself into a specific order, such as like Alexandrian Wiccan or something like that. You need someone to initiate you into that. But you can obviously like dedicate yourself to the Wiccan path and the goddess and all that stuff in your own sort of path. Um, on your own. But no practitioner of any tradition really has the right or justification to say what is correct or valid for a path outside of their own. So Buckland goes on to describe a self-dedication ritual as well as a coven initiation ritual. But I'm going to leave that for Buckland to teach you. So if that is something you really want to get into, um, you can buy Buckland's book. Um, Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, if uh, you're interested in that. Yeah, and we obviously agree with Buckland here. While you can't just decide to induct yourself into somebody else's group, there's no reason that you can't perform initiation rituals on your own of your own design on your own to mark important milestones in your own personal practice. Uh, maybe you prefer to work alone, or you're not currently in contact with any other practitioners, or maybe you're uncomfortable sharing your practice with others for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. All this stuff is still accessible to you. Yeah, done right. And by the end of this episode, I hope that we'll have gone over enough kind of like differences and similarities between a variety of different uh, initiations and stuff like that, that, you know, you as a, a practitioner stuck at home in this time can put together your own initiation ritual. Starhawk includes that uh, traditionally a witch would commit to studying for a year and a day in order to undergo what they described as, or she described as, neurological repatterning in order to effectively do magical work. They also remind us that she, I keep saying they, she also reminds us that, right, it's it's better to, to fall upon my blade and perish than it is to attempt this with fear in my heart, which I've also heard is the attempt part being replaced with enter the circle. So like, it's better to fall upon my blade and perish than enter the circle with fear in my heart. Anyway, this is just kind of like general use for a ceremony. However, uh, the point is that, you know, the stripping away of fear and embracing new life in the coven and new relationship with, you know, the, the goddess and, and the horned god. She also reminds us that, you know, we must suffer in order to learn. People do not change when they are comfortable. It's pretty fairly universal principle and can be applied to, to many aspects of, of life beyond the occult. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Starhawk goes into a bit more detail on her coven-specific rite of initiation than Buckland does. Again, I'm not going to give you all of the detail on it because, you know, if you're interested, you should pick up a copy of her book, Spiral Dance, from your local independent bookseller. Um, you know, or support Powell's books. I uh, do, however, have some notes here that I think are worth running through. Something Starhawk has to add to our previously constructed understanding of initiation is that there's often some form of trial or test. She doesn't really go into a whole lot of detail about this, but rather than describing it for you or, you know, you reading it or whatever, 
I actually recommend that you check out the documentary, The Occult Experience. I'm pretty sure you can watch it on YouTube for free. It's pretty low quality and grainy, but it's really interesting. And you'll see a couple initiations into various traditions and sort of the trials the initiates go through and stuff like that. And it's very it's just very interesting. Like it's a, it's a cool documentary. I think everyone should see it at some point. So from here, I think it's important to reiterate that each step, word, action, timing, et cetera, and any ritual, but especially a rite of passage or rite of initiation um, is deeply steeped in symbolism. No aspect should or is left without consideration. Uh, this is important in creating any kind of powerful ritual, like a full gestalt, unifying the senses with mythological reenactment to fully engage the mind is paramount to being successful in these things. The more theatrical and immersive, the better. You know, you have to participate, to be an active role in the, the reenacting of the mythology. Often blindfolds are used on initiates, as pointed out uh, earlier on, with forms of binding to, to sort of represent being uh, caught up and restricted in the womb, you know, because again, this is like part of that rebirth aspect of initiation. Often deities will be invoked or called upon during the ceremony, and um, often someone will also act as like a sponsor of the initiate. Um, this is seen in Wicca as well as Freemasonry. Yeah, and I know that in both of those traditions and in Hermeticism too, like the the concept of initiation really is kind of central. And so also the importance of symbolism here really can't be overstated. Um, in order for practitioners to work effectively together, there needs to be an internal consistency to the system of symbols that they're going to use. Um, and the process of learning this, these types of symbols, like this is its own sort of initiation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about rites of passage in uh, modern culture. Um, we've talked about initiations in like sort of a Wiccan sense. Let's take a, a look at some kind of different stuff, shall we? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. We're going to first, the first thing we're going to check out is some, some work by Manly P. Hall. He wrote this tome of a book called The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Very interesting, but I will point out that while Manly P. Hall has some very interesting work out there, he was definitely a racist. So that's one of those like things you got to kind of read around if you're going to uh, read his stuff. When, when was his book written? When was this written? Uh, I think like he was writing in like the 20s and 30s. Okay. So yeah, I mean, context is obviously important when you're reading anything, guys. So you know that already though. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if that like excuses... Oh, no, it doesn't. I mean, no, it doesn't excuse it, but it does provides context is all. Sure. Yeah. All right. So in chapter seven of the secret teachings of all ages, Hall discusses the great pyramid of Giza naturally is one of like the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's going to be all kinds of fantastic stories and disputed histories and stuff like this surrounding such an amazing feat of human ingenuity. Naturally, the pyramid or triangle shape has found its way into many mystical traditions. We could peel back the layers of Hall's mysticism and symbolism and interpretation of the pyramid at some point. But for now, we're just going to stick to sort of our topics. We've gone on several tirades already. Uh, he argues that the Great Pyramid was not a lighthouse or an observatory or a tomb, but the first temple of the mysteries, the first structure erected as a repository for the secret truths, which are the certain foundation of all arts and sciences. Now, obviously, the pyramids were tombs. We found mummies in them. 
uh, translation of the, of the hieroglyphs um, in various parts indicate spells about you know things to be used during the afterlife and to assist in and travel through the afterlife. However, with the the pharaohs being the high priests of the ancient Egyptian religion and revered as gods themselves, it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that these structures served a dual purpose, if not multiple purposes. According to Hall, the temple is complete only when the initiate themselves uh, becomes the living apex through which divine power is focused into the diverging structure below. And he gives some nice flowery descriptions of the temple um, as a womb and um, uh, of rebirth into the mystery traditions and the sacred knowledge of Egypt into in which people entered and then exited as gods. And in which uh, the initiate came to know this sort of timeless master of masters and keeper of all knowledge who would conduct this initiation. He is suggesting that initiation was conducted by the deity and not by like a high priest or something like that, which is interesting, but we can come back to that another time. Yeah, yeah, you know, that actually sort of makes sense. I mean, psychologically speaking, I mean, it seems like the group would have to have some kind of like higher authority to like cement their hierarchy. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we see this on a lot of different groups, their secret chiefs and things like that. Um, as a side note, it it's kind of interesting how many cultures seem to have independently adopted the use of pyramids or pyramid-like structures. I guess it is super stable, so I guess it, you know, makes sense from that standpoint. Um, I guess it also kind of is reminiscent of mountains, which is one of the places that one can traditionally go to seek enlightenment or knowledge or whatever. Yeah, and that's why uh, much or you know, almost all of the, the pyramids worldwide were temples, which gives, I guess, a little bit of extra, maybe anecdotal evidence towards uh, this use for the, the Great Pyramids in Egypt. Um, but like the point being that the higher you are on the, or just the higher up you are in general, the closer you were to the gods. So, I mean, the Egyptian pyramids were a little different because you go in them instead of go up them, like the ziggurats that you see in like North and South America. Now, what comes next in this what comes next is a lot of esoteric speculation on Hall's part. The Great Pyramid is one of the the seven wonders of the ancient world, as I said before, so it's subject to all kinds of stories. Um, was it a tomb, a temple, a power station, a place of communication with extraterrestrial or extra dimensional beings and so on and so on and so forth. Despite extensive scientific study of the pyramid over man, more than a century now, we're you know, still discovering new things about it every couple of years or so, uncovering, you know, this new record that sheds light on blah or, you know, whatever. So I, I don't know. I would say just don't throw Hall's interpretation out with the bathwater just yet. And even if it does turn out to be nonsense, it's still a delightful imagination of how initiations could be done yeah man i mean the pyramid imagery is definitely something that i'm into i think everybody kind of likes it but all right let's hear these esoteric speculations sure so hall claims that the king's chamber the, the burial chamber was uh where the death ritual or the ritual death and and rebirth of the initiation occurred and was you know they were then entombed in the sarcophagus and hopefully they didn't have to like recite their history of sexual exploits like those kids in the bone <laughs> bones um anyway uh at this point the neophyte is said to to project out of their body into the astral plane 
to kind of search for capital T truth. And so what I got out of this, uh, the first time I read it and, and I still, still get this out of it. I, I made a little note in the book. Um, I write all over my stuff, but anyway, he's making this claim that like the, the sarcophagus was used as sort of a sensory deprivation tank. Now, regardless of the factual basis for this, I feel like initiation is a lot about personal truth and dedication, even within, you know, the context of, um, you know, a group or otherwise established practice. So that sort of like time alone with whatever you want to call the forces that be, really kind of resonates with me and also it serves like that again that like dual purpose is sort of like the womb the place of rebirth but hall also sprinkles in throughout there throughout that whole chapter really this all this stuff about the myth of the dying god which again is is something i really want to dig into in a whole episode at some point as well as i think a companion episode um of the history and the lineage of, of goddess worship which is also equally fascinating but i've got one other interesting historical initiation for us okay that sounds really cool yeah i mean i think we should do the goddess one first personally anyway yeah. the idea I'm not, i don't care which <laughs> order kidding. we do them in just kidding <laughs> the idea of a sarcophagus being used as a sensory deprivation tank is super fascinating it's very fun regardless of the historical accuracy so. yeah totally i mean it's a neat idea Anyway, so we know uh, pyramids were used to bury people. We don't know if they were used for anything else. I would speculate, you know, it's probably likely that they were because of their size, the amount of time and effort taken to construct them. But, you know, we just we don't have the evidence to prove it. And we probably never will. I mean, who knows what was in the Library of Alexandria when it burned down? We, you know, we could be colonizing space right now uh, had we not had so many book burnings accidental or intentional uh taking place throughout our history but hey oh my god i think about that all the fucking time <laughs> it's like the greatest tragedy of history i when i talk to that in my history class they're like it breaks kids hearts maybe we should talk about this in a separate episode where we talk about the occult and science and that history sure i'm down cool. um but hey let's let's keep moving so i'll make this one quick because Oh my gosh, we've got to be sitting on over an hour an episode right now. So, okay, I'll make this fast. It's fine, man. It's fine. It should be as long as it needs to be. <laughs> you're, right, you're, right, you're right. It's all good. All right, so 1978, you got Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and Carl P. Ruck. They published this book together titled The Road to Eleusis, Unveiling the Secret of the Mysteries. And their book, they, they come at the Elysian Mysteries from a scientific, a mythological, and a psychedelic and spiritual kind of angles, right? Mm -hmm. The mysteries were steeped in the mythology of the cults of Demeter and Persephone and involved the ingestion of a psychedelic, psychoactive brew called chicken, um, brewed from barley that was infected with ergot fungus, which many of you know is the fungus used by Albert Hoffman to synthesize LSD. But as many people are aware, um, ergot contains some other potent chemicals and poisons in it, I guess. I don't know. You're a botanist. You could probably speak to this. Um, well, I mean, it is a, it's mushroom. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm not a mycologist. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it has all kinds of crazy shit in it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. The ancient Greeks, like the masterwork of the Amazonians who crafted ayahuasca, figured out a way to brew their sacrament such that 
it minimized the negative effects and maximized the the LSD-like effects. So the deal was basically this. Every Greek citizen who had not stained their hands with human blood was welcome to come to the temple once during their life and be initiated into the mysteries. And of course, like all good things, eventually um, it gets corrupted. The Greek aristocracy figures out how to make it and they host like private party. Before we move ahead, I want to bring back, just bring us back around a little bit. And uh, there's this tidbit of spiral dance that I pulled out that I feel merits a little bit of discussion or at least just mentioning. So here it goes. We must strip ourselves of our defenses, pretensions, masks of our clothing and our jewels, all that we assume and put on in order to cross that threshold and enter the inner kingdom. The door opens only to the naked body of truth, bound by cords, our recognition of mortality. Delightful whimsy or sinister nonsense? <laughs> you know what? I think it's kind of both and neither. All right. Is that indeterminate? Mm, here, I think I might have an inkling of what she's talking about. Let me try to unpack. So in order to enter the inner kingdom or the mysteries or start the journey... One must be willing to shed their identity, which is kind of like a sort of symbolic death or ego death, maybe. Uh, You have to be willing to give it all up, maybe, in order to learn about detachment. Detachment's important in chaos magic and other traditions, too, right? Yeah. I guess it's kind of a helpful tool in general. The idea of, like, entering the inner kingdom reminds me of, like, psychonautic exploration and astral stuff. You know? Yeah. So I'm also kind of reminded of Plato's Republic, which is really more of a treatise about like how one should order the Republic of one's own mind, too. So that whole kind of inner kingdom thing. Yeah. There's so much, yeah, there's so much crossover between magic and psychology, in fact. Like, some people think that magic is all psychology, right? That's one way of looking at it. I obviously have no fucking idea myself, but uh, most cult traditions, at least the ones I've heard about, have introspection as somewhat of like a central theme. So it yeah. kind of fits, you know? I think like a lot of religions in general. Sure. Yeah, man. All right. So the next part is the doors open only to the naked body of truth bound by cords, our recognition of mortality. Uh, I think the idea behind this is that you have to stand in your truth or be naked and unable to hide anything uh, in order to like decide what will be when first must acknowledge what is. Part of what is is the reality of life and that everything is, you know, impermanent. All things, even the universe itself will end uh, all that lives is bound to die you already mentioned the like ritual binding and blindfolding and all that stuff and i'm sure we could talk more about that um and we'll can, we can also save it for the sex magic episode um and take an interlude are we going to talk about binding and blindfolding in the sex magic episode i mean like are we i hope so i, I don't know why we wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> all right interlude interlude all right today's episode is brought to you by the three of wands all right so like always i'm going to talk about my understanding of the card and if you disagree that is totally cool whatever um okay (laughs) i'd like to start with the numerology and to do this i would like to read a little bit about the concept of three 
from a very cool little book called Sacred Number, The Hidden Qualities of Quantities by Miranda Lundy. You guys should check this thing out. It's super cool. It's full of insightful poetic musings like about numbers, like really cool and informative, like little illustrations and some really great tidbits about math and it's like history. All right, so here goes. The triad relates to opposites and their co-mixture, solution or mediator. The synthesis or return to unity after the division of two. The third leg of a stool gives it balance. The third strand of a braid makes a plate. Knots can only be tied in three-dimensional space. Fairy tales and other stories abound with portentous threes, juggling past, present, and future with the knower, knowing, and the known. Everybody loves threes, right? Totally. Yeah. It comes up everywhere, so I'm sure that this isn't the last that we'll hear from three. <laughs> So the Zodiac association with the Three of Wands is Aries, uh, which kind of makes sense because this card is all about like finally having what you need together to set out on your journey. Uh, Aries is, you know, it's a charging ram, kind of embodies activation and initiative and initiation. Uh, It's the first sign of the Zodiac too, so that makes sense. Uh, And the Rider Waite Coleman Smith deck, the Three of Wands shows a figure standing at the top of a hill. Uh, their back is turned to the viewer as they gaze out over an expanse of water where ships can be seen like kind of coming and going. Uh, the figure is standing between two staffs and their right hand is grasping a third which looks as though it's going to be used as a walking staff. So the idea of like kind of setting out on a quest leaps to mind here. Uh, the two upright rods on either side of the figure are also kind of rep- reminiscent of a gateway. Uh, we can see the mountains in the background across the water. Water usually symbolizes like subconscious right you know i was kind of reminded of the idea of the inner kingdom again like we just sort of talked about you know maybe it's going to take braving those waters to get to the mountains so in franz Farden's initiation into hermetics the author says this about the tarot cards many know of course that the word tarot does not mean a game of cards serving manticle purposes but a symbolic book of initiation which contains the greatest secrets in symbolic form. The first tablet of this book introduces the magician, representing him as the master of the elements and offering the key to the first arcanum. So we could definitely have gone with the magician for this one, but as Borden points out, each card in the deck depicts its own type of initiation, its own step in the journey. So I think this is a good time to underline again the point that initiation really is an ongoing process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like it's the fool's journey, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so we are to the discussion portion of our episode here. Yeah, let's talk about our experiences yeah. with initiation. All right, I've got a few initiation experiences that I think are worth discussing. You know, obviously I've been through many modern cultural initiations. Uh, you know, we discussed much of that kind of earlier on in our episode. I was actually baptized Catholic around like 11, I think. My mom converted to Christ- uh, to Catholicism. You know, this is usually done to a child like as soon as possible, like as soon as soon after birth as possible. But for me, it was like late. And also, like, I don't think I, I definitely wasn't committed to it. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, you they want to baptize that baby young. Save that sweet boy from the flames of Lucifer. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't really have a problem with Christians. I, I think it's 
<laughs> I just grew up in a really conservative Christian town. So anyway, one of my my first probably real life changing initiations um, in a spiritual sense was around 19 or 20. Uh, I'd been experimenting with psychedelics for a little while. And, you know, my first trip was a rite of passage, but it wasn't really like initiation in itself. So I got when my like my like supply my dealer or whatever of like LSD and mushrooms and stuff had sort of like dried up. I got into like ethnobotany um, and found this really neat book, the encyclopedia of psychoactive plants by uh, Christian Ratzich and began experimenting with some more like plant-based visionary experiences. You know, I want to mention before we go any further, I like really don't recommend to anyone that you go out and do this. There is like so much you need to know about plants and about yourself and about your diet and your medications before you start like walking down you know that path effectively it, it can be it can be dangerous anyway yeah don't just yeah don't don't just don't just don't don't um, you do you but don't <laughs> right 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 um, anyway so i was getting ready to move to to the pacific islands for a while and decided to look into like what native plants were out there that i could harvest to to continue working in this way and i found hawaiian baby wood rose which turned out to be an option um, the seeds of which contain LSA, which can be used as a precursor to LSD, uh, similar to morning glory seeds. And just like morning glory seeds, the shells contain like a low dose of uh, cyanide, which makes you like sick to your stomach when you eat them. I'm not really going to go into a huge amount of detail about everything that, that happened uh, the first time I did this. What I've called the tale of eight seeds, which will be included in uh, the book on my sort of particular occult path I've been working on for the past year. I'm thinking about calling it Primer, which, uh, you know, I hope to have done by the end of quarantine, but who knows. Um, but long story short, this was like my first real bad trip. But, you know, with all things bad, you can learn a lot of good from it. If you pay attention to, to what's going on, what's going through your head, what, what you're experiencing. And after like sort of like the peak, um, I actually had a really valuable experience. I tapped into, I believe anyway, what you know, people refer to as the Akashic Record. You know, I wasn't alone. I felt like I was guided through this experience by some other force or of some kind, um, you know, maybe spirit of the plant or maybe whatever capital T truth is, Triton, God, whatever, whatever you want to refer to it as. I don't know. But ultimately, I learned that I know nothing. And uh, I think that's where, like, my journey really began. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh that's awesome. I definitely hear what you're saying about like taking a bad and scary situation and like actually learning what you can from it. Um, I'm super stoked about the book too. It sounds super interesting. I'm tempted to share one of my experiences with hallucinogens here, but I think I'm, uh, I think I'm going to save that. And instead I'm going to go all the way back to when I was a kid and when I first did magic. All right. Like most of the stories that I tell on this show, it's probably going to be pretty embarrassing. That's okay. Here goes. <laughs> no, I, it's good I think. For, for our listeners anyway. Maybe it's good for you too. I don't know. I don't know. I had picked up some candles and like a few books from a little occult bookstore that I could walk to from my school. Uh, I was probably somewhere around 11 or 12. Uh, things have been pretty frustrating for me. Uh, it's kind of a hard age, no matter what, I think. But my parents had gotten divorced and everything was like really chaotic, both like in my head and in my life. So I was like sitting there in my bedroom floor. I think I had made like a little circle out of like string or something. 
and I was like staring into the flame of a candle, like concentrating on my like wish or whatever, like which I had written on a piece of paper, and I was gonna burn it, you know, and then bury it. Um, and as I did this, I remember having the sensation of a sort of like internal transformation, like all the like fear and anger and frustration and like loneliness and all of it like began to sort of like rearrange into something else like this strong desire i mean i think what i was feeling there was like the first like inklings of like will with the capital w you know the notion that even though it didn't feel like it i still actually did have agency uh and so the psychological impact of this action you know performing this like little spell was actually huge for me <laughs> and that's to be expected you know as we've discussed but after i was done i felt a lot better um i had actually done something even if it was by myself and nobody else would ever know you know i had a secret i had you know something so the note that i had burned said i have power I've actually never spoken of this before, but I think it's safe to do it now. <laughs> yeah, your your wish was true all along, but you solidified it in action. You willed it forward. It, it's pretty awesome self-initiation. I'm curious how your magical thinking might have changed after that experience. Yeah, no, dude, that's a good question. Like, I think in terms of like using magical thinking as like a useful tool, which is something that we're planning to talk about here pretty soon. Um, it's hard to say, like, exactly since it was so long ago, but I do think that my attitude towards, like, everything sort of changed, you know. This kind of played out in my attitude towards authority, um, well, because of my age and because of what was going on in my life and because of practicing witchcraft, you know. I, I think I got the first brushes of, like, the existential dread and the knowledge that no one really knows exactly what they're doing, even though always, like, everybody's always like seeming to pretend that they do. <laughs> yeah. uh, I sort of had this idea that all of us, you know, humans, we're all on equal footing. And how dare anyone try to tell me what I'm supposed to do? <laughs> I'm sure I was a delight. <laughs> I still feel that way today. So, Yes, I mean, it's a typical teen angst attitude, I know, but some of it actually does stand up to logical scrutiny. Like, I still think we should be less like dogs and more like cats in terms of how we interact with our institutions. No dogs, no masters. <laughs> I think my practice definitely helped me sort of keep the rebellious spirit alive as I underwent subsequent conditioning in school and work and life in general. I don't know. Uh, let's hear one, another one of your stories, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, this one is, again... Uh psychedelic related but the other experience it's intense depending on how serious you take it but i i found it interesting when it happened to me the one time i was just wandering around town at night with some friends all of us on lsd um and this was like early 2000s like <laughs> way like back in the day we bumped into uh some friends of a friend uh in this like sort of I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's a common like nightlife, but also like daytime, like just like general use space that was in this small city um, that we were in. Well, it wasn't really a park, but it's sort of like if, if a bunch of businesses faced each other and then you took the road away and turned it into like a place with benches and a fountain. 
Yeah, it's um, like a business park. park. I think they call it a business park. Do they? Okay, yeah. So. And like just like people would hang out there. It wasn't necessarily like um it was also like a really weird space. It was like very like all the shops were very like hippy dippy and um and stuff like that. And there's some really kick ass pizza there. Anyway, um <laughs> I must have been it must have been like eleven at night and this guy was like, Oh, you're tripping. Lay down on the ground, close your eyes and you know, we all did this. And so what he do is he'd tap your leg and then run your hand like run his hand like down your leg from like thigh to foot and be like let all the blood run out of your leg and then he did this on both sides and then to the arms and the chest and then he'd finally like tap you on the head and be like you're dead now tripping (laughs) is like kind of an intense experience right um especially if you have a really good imagination already and you're you're like willing to get into it but the next thing he did was grab your hands and like abruptly pull you forward which like obviously made people's eyes like shoot wide open you know as you're like rushing up into the seated position um and as you open your eyes he would say uh the past is behind you welcome to your new life which was super crazy intense i think like a good psychological spiritual cleanse that you know i guess i wouldn't mind going through every couple years or so (laughs) that's wild man i don't know whether to be horrified or delighted (laughs) i'm going with both on this one So this story is especially apropos because you got a little taste of the death and rebirth symbology that so many paths make use of. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was completely spontaneous, which made it exceptionally powerful and meaningful to me. I think a lot of religious initiations, you know, at least a little bit what to expect as you, um, you know, you, you might not entirely know what what to expect but this entirely unexpected experience was like more impactful because it you know i didn't know i was walking into it i didn't know what was going to happen it just happened so i think if like i was the high priest of like a coven or organized group of magicians i i would tailor the initiation to be specific to each initiate and make it like completely different than any of the other initiations that came before it so like it couldn't really be prepared for I feel like it would be more powerful that way. I don't know. This is just me thinking out loud. No, dude, hell yeah. I totally agree. Like, even if we're not part of a group or whatever, this is something that we should all be doing for ourselves. It's just super effective tech. Maybe we should design one as a fun bonus and put it on our Patreon? Ooh, initiation? Yeah. yeah. I like that idea. Um, you know what? We've been working on that uh, digital grimoire. We could put it in there. Yeah, sure. All right. Yeah, we'll... We will get you a initiation ritual somehow. You know, we could start our uh, <laughs> our own occult religion first before we initiate people. You know, then we could initiate people into our religion. Join our Patreon today and get initiated into the delightful whimsy of our sinister nonsense and rise with the sun and achieve godhood. All of this could be yours for the low price of your soul and your eternal faithful devotion. Absolutely. And I propose it should also be required that each member submit at least one dirty limerick per year to the High Council of Elders for review in order to remain in good standing with the order. Why a limerick? Because it's funny. Okay. And rhymes have magic. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, so you did. Uh, you did too. I guess. I, I guess I can do another one. Um, 
the first one that comes to mind actually is like pretty recent, right? Like I'm going to say it's the first, the first joint uh, ritual that we did. Yeah. Where yeah, we, definitely. yeah, where we did the initiation for our servitor gav bag. Like, I think that was definitely, I would point to that as being like, well, yeah, I've never done that before. And it was pretty crazy. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was a, a really fun experience and it continues to be a really fun experience actually. Yeah, um, definitely. You know, I was just thinking earlier, was it earlier today or yesterday when I was putting together the video for um, Delightful Whimsy or Sinister Nonsense Round <laughs> 1 that, yeah, it was Thursday. So it was the morning after we uh, birthed grab ba- uh, Gab Bag and all of a sudden all of the problems I had with editing and uh, making the video work for that just suddenly were like, it's fine now. So that's cool development. Yeah, dude, I've been uh, seeing a marked reduction in technical difficulties as well. Yeah, awesome. Good stuff. We'll keep you posted on how that that's working out. Yeah, hell yeah. All right. So how about some homework here? Yeah, we should have a little homework. It's two-parter. First thing we'd like you to do is sit down with a pad of paper or a Google Doc or an Etch-a-Sketch, you know, whatever works best for you, and make a detailed list of all of the rites of passage you've been through in your life. What was significant about them? What happened specifically? How do these things affect you? Uh, what would you have done differently if you had to do it over? After you have all your notes, think about them for a while, add details that come to mind that, you know, maybe you missed or, you know, think on paper, generate how, how you feel about these things. Do a little more journaling if you, if you like. So just take some time, maybe a few days a week, uh, consider them, meditate on them, you know, think about the things about these experiences that were really meaningful for you, powerful, liberating, terrifying, sad, and, and make notes about what conclusions or realizations you come to. The second part is to take your notes and begin designing a personal initiation ritual. Even if you don't intend on actually carrying it out or doing it, it's a good thought experiment and good ritual writing practice. Hell yeah, dude. And you know what? Like, even if you don't actually do it, like the fact that you made it is also significant. We'll we'll talk more about that in path working. Uh (laughs) There's also some like ego work in there too, right? You're deconstructing some of your past experiences and like kind of digging into sort of like the emotional side of things that have affected you in your life. So it's a few different things. Definitely. And like, yeah, like you said earlier, it's all connected. So... All right, let's let's get the hell out of here and do some work cited, shall we? All right, yeah. Um, the Anthropology of Religion, Magic, and Witchcraft by Rebecca and Philip Stein. Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft by Raymond Buckland. The Spiral Dance by Starhawk. Solitary Witch by Silver Ravenwolf. The Road to Eleusis by Wasson, Hoffman, and Ruck. The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. Son of Chicken Kabbalah by Lon Milo... Duquette. Initiation into Hermetics by Franz Barton. Sacred Number, The Hidden Qualities of Quantities by Miranda Ludi. And I feel like we usually have, or in the past few episodes, we've had a longer sort of statement or poem or quote. But, you know, I felt called to this specific quote from Libranol by uh, Peter J. Carroll uh, to use as our closing today. And it's short and sweet. And he writes this, self alone is God and should recognize itself in all things. Good stuff. All right, so if you have had some interesting experiences with the rites of passage or initiation into a coven, sect, order, or something, um, or something that maybe you maybe you did on your own 
um, and you'd like to share it with us, please drop us a line at foolsguidetotheoccult at gmail.com. And that's the number two. Uh, and tell us about your personal initiations that you designed as your homework. We want to hear about it. Yeah, definitely. Also, please like us on Facebook and join our community page off our main Facebook page. That community page is Fellow Travelers. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Fool's Guide. Several people have messaged us there, and I, I try and get back to people as soon as possible. So a little bit of dialogue going on there as well. Yeah, cool, man. I mean, and if you're into the show, which you probably are if you listen to it this long, um, and you want to hear us talk about like more crazy stuff uh, like the occult and pop culture or our book club dialogues discussing quantum psychology by Robert Anton Wilson, please consider uh, joining our Patreon at um, patreon.com backslash FG, the number two, T-O. Uh, we tend to get a little bit more wild with our Patreon content. Um, we've been working pretty hard to like get a lot of cool stuff up there. So by the time this episode comes out, we may even have some cool surprises. So you never know. Yeah, definitely. We definitely want to like keep this show, at least, I, I don't know. I've gone back and forth about this, but I, I feel like I'd love to keep this show um, ad-free. You know, it's kind of a labor of love. Um, but, you know, we could also really use some new equipment, like some better microphones and stuff like that and resources uh, to, to help out with research and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it costs, yeah, it costs us money to make it. So, yeah. Yeah, totally. And time and shit, whatever. Mm -hmm. But anyway... So our Patreon is pay what you can with like a $1 minimum. That's all access. There's no tiers, nothing like that. So like every dollar helps and uh, we so much appreciate it. Yeah. Hell yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we are going to get out of here. <laughs> so until next time, uh, take care of yourselves and uh, have an excellent day or night. Cheers. <laughs>